I think I have something to bring you that is good, even exciting. It's something many people, including my patients, have taught me over the last 40 years. It's simple and yet so important that understanding it could alter the lives of many because what I propose to tell you could make you invulnerable to the threat of any future nervous breakdown and it could help to cure those already in breakdown. That was the voice of mental health pioneer Dr. Claire Weeks making a powerful claim about preventing and healing the symptoms of anxiety. Back in the 1960s, she cured many thousands of sufferers with a method she described as simple but not easy. Hello, I'm Caroline Baum, and welcome to Life Sentences. Claire Weeks's unconventional life and work have been sensitively documented in a recent biography called The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code by Judith Hoare. It's the portrait of a gifted scientist who was also blessed with a talent for communication. That dual ability made her an internationally best-selling author back in the day when self-help books were not yet a publishing phenomenon. Her book, Self-Help for Your Nerves, was originally published in 1962 and is still in print today. But her personal story was not widely known and her private life reveals a woman of complexity. I recorded this conversation with Judith Hall on a somewhat dodgy phone line and began by asking her to give us the outline of Claire Weeks's life. Well, Claire Weeks was born in 1903 and she was the eldest of four children. She was born in Sydney and it was a well, middle-class family. Her father was a musician. Her mother was typically for the day a homemaker, although she did manage to add a little bit to the family coffers by bringing in tenants, but, which was probably a bit unusual for the time. But Claire was really the favourite of this family and she was a woman who went on to do a number of really significant things, the most significant of all, of course, being the way she saved so many lives around the planet through her self-help books. But before she wrote those very successful books, she had a, a number of very significant careers, including achieving two degrees in different areas. And when you called your book The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code, um, did that title come to you straight away or was that the last part of the process? And what do you mean by cracking the anxiety code? Well, I mean a couple of things, I think, and it came to me immediately, I hate to say, but that's possibly because I, I am a, a former newspaper editor who edited long-form journalism and I think in governing ideas. So, so often when people propose a topic to me or pitched a story, I would think, what is this story? And I would think in headlines, what would be? So when I thought of writing about Claire Weeks, I don't think it took me long at all to just make that the working title. Um, and it had two meanings for me. I think the first meaning was I feel that in a sea of ignorance and confusion in this field, she actually was someone who measurably saved people's lives, helped people out of distress. And even if she didn't save their lives, and there were people's lives who she, I think she believes she quite literally saved, but, but for the most they were people just terribly distressed and confused. But she could measure her success by the books sold, by the, by the response she got from readers, by her patients who had been lost and they suddenly felt they'd found themselves with her help and they'd found their lives. So in that sense, she was doing something unique for the time 
I'd still say possibly unique even for this time, I would argue, um, given the confusion that still reigns in the anxiety field. And I also think the reason I used code is she actually does have a code. I mean, she's got, it's not just that she explains the nervous system to people and relieves them of their anxieties about the desperate distress they feel and they don't understand. It's that she has a little mantra that she can give you that's like a little method. It's only, it's about six or seven words. It's only a handful of words, but it's like a little word toolkit you can use to remind yourself over and over again and remind that tired old brain of how to get through this next onslaught of distress really so code had two meanings in my mind how did you first become aware of her given that she's been largely forgotten or perhaps overtaken by others in the self-help field I came across her when I was in my 20s and I was very distressed myself and I had no idea why this had happened because I'd not had a difficult, particularly difficult childhood or background, but I was in a very stressful job and I'd got sick. I'd ended up hospitalised. There'd been a hemorrhage. It was elective surgery. It was nothing too serious, but it left me very run down and I was working in the Canberra Press Gallery. There were very late nights. I went back to work too early and I got heart palpitations, which was as a result of, you know, overwork, stress and and um, a little bit of just just total bodily and physical fatigue. And so, of course, the first thing I did when I got heart palpitations was panic. And, of course, the first thing that that meant was that they didn't stop. So uh, numbers of trips to cardiologists later, there's nothing wrong with your heart, no one could explain. No one took me aside to explain that I was just locked in this cycle. So I stayed locked in it for a while, and it was very distressing. And, um, of course, you think you're a bit crazy and then suddenly, just serendipitously, I tripped across this book. A friend of the family had passed it on to my mother who passed it on to me. And it was like this revelation. I went, oh, for heaven's sake, that's, that's what this is all about. I don't have a heart complaint. I'm, I'm causing it myself. So I thought, well, that is incredibly useful information. And um, I don't know about you or your listeners, but... Once in a while in your life, someone says something to you or gives you some information and you think to yourself, that is so utterly liberating and so utterly helpful, but so utterly rare. So, of course, you never forget about that that story. And as a consequence of thinking, oh, my goodness, this woman has been so helpful. I could have suffered for an awfully long time in silence. You don't tend to, you know, in those days you didn't tend to whine about things. You just stashed it all away inside and melted down quietly so to me it was just remarkably helpful and I remember thinking where is she and why don't we know a lot about her but of course I had a busy life I was in my 20s I got on with it but I never forgot her or the work Um, and as soon as she jumped into my head I thought surely she's been written about this woman will have a biography but a very cursory search showed me that no nothing had ever been written about her so the field was clear And that was the first thing. And as soon as I found it was clear, I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a book about this incredible woman because I knew from years of journalism that if I had a hunch about something and a bit of a belief that someone was good or they'd done something important, that I'd I'd practiced that, testing that hunch over years. And I thought, I bet I'm right. I bet I bet that there's a lot more people than me that think she's fantastic. 
But it's one thing to have that hunch, Judith, and it's another to know that someone's got enough backstory to make their revolutionary theory or, you know, invention or whatever is the sort of, you know, great achievement of their life. You have to have more than just that one thing. So at what point did you know that there was more to her than than the fact that she had cracked the anxiety code, which is not me diminishing the significance of that, but you know that for a book you need more. I looked at Wikipedia, very short entry on her, one man mentioned, one psychiatrist mentioned, I, and I thought, that's interesting, it's short, one person only. Tracked him down um, because he used to, he'd set up the American Association of um, Depression of Anxiety or something along those lines, um, a national organisation. He'd since retired. I sent him an email saying I was trying to contact him regarding Dr Claire Weeks and overnight I got an email in my intro and then it was this short, I'm so delighted to know that you are interested in her. She changed my world and the world of and the history of treatment of anxiety, but only you and I know that. Maybe your book will change that. So it was this incredible moment of affirmation. I think, to be truthful, it was as soon as I got this back, it was this man saying, you are so on the money, this woman has been overlooked, and he'd run the whole association. So that was really, really reaffirming. So I thought, okay, that's all right. I'm on the right track. And then, of course, the minute I started digging into her life, I'd be, I'd tell, I'd be telling my husband, I'd say, I've just found out this. And he'd go, goodness me, that's interesting. And then I'd tell him something else. He'd say, that's amazing. And then it would go on like this. And he'd say, you are onto such a fascinating story. So I kept finding more and more out about her life because it was a rich journey towards her destination, if you like. One of the things that, of course, I think is very interesting is that she – in a way, had this great empathy, sympathy with her clients because she had had her own mental health struggles very early on. So could you tell us a little bit about the connection between tuberculosis and anxiety in her case? Right. Well, that was um, that was pretty important because she was wrongly diagnosed with tuberculosis when she was in the middle of her all-important journey to get a doctorate of science at the University of Sydney and she was very confident she'd been very successful nothing had stood in her path to that point she was the apple of her mother's eye you know they could see they had this wonderfully successful girl and they were going to back her very unusual in the 1920s so she had everything going for her she had family backing she got an honours degree in science she was doing her doctorate then all of a sudden she has something wrong with her throat Um, her heart starts to race, they look into it and somehow along the line they misdiagnose it as tuberculosis. turns out it was septic tonsils, I think. But as a consequence, she's in those days you had to go straight to a sanatorium. I mean, today we'd be told to, you know, self-isolate. In those days you were isolated from everyone. So a 20-something-year-old girl who was used to a big family was sent right out into the country and she was put in a sanatorium where people were sick and dying. Now, of course, the heart palpitations got worse. Needless to say, the anxiety got worse. So after six months when they realised, well, actually, she didn't have tuberculosis, they discharged her. But by then she was in an even worse state. Her heart was racing uncontrollably, was missing beats. She had the full sort of distressed symphony. And she was just, she by that stage thought she was just going mad. 
There's also another factor which I think is really interesting, which is what she learnt from people who'd come back from the war, and in particular from a book that was written about the impact of the war called Shell Shock and Its Lessons, which was published in 1917. Would I be right in thinking that the information in that book would be a precursor to what we now call PTSD? Oh, I think you would be absolutely right. And there's another fascinating story. He was another Australian. So Grafton Elliott Smith was named after the little town of Grafton in New South Wales. He ended up being a, a neurologist and an absolute specialist in everything to do with the brain, uh, brain morphology as it was called. And he ran the Department of Anatomy at the University School London. He'd been at Cambridge. He'd in fact worked in Egypt and x-rayed Egyptian mummies. This guy was the brain expert. He's a whole other story. Probably not enough has been written about him. And so you have this remarkable coincidence where she ends up at University College London, um, gets off the boat, with heart palpitations because at that stage she's been discharged but she's still pressed on with getting a scholarship, going to London, and she's taught by a man who, as it turns out, and this was one of the thrilling bits of the chase, is that I, when I research a man who's teaching her that course she was studying over there, um, I find she ends up studying the nervous system under him and he's written, then I find he's written this book um, called Shell Shock and Its Lessons and that he had written that in 1917 because as roughly medically trained as anatomists were called in those days, he was seen as useful to the war effort for treating shell shock soldiers in London. He said doctors needed to understand more about the psychology of fear and if only doctors could be educated in the psychology of fear, they could help a lot more people because the illnesses that soldiers got in ward through overexposure to fear were the same sorts of things that happened to ordinary people in the course of their daily life, just more exaggerated. So he had this idea that this should be addressed as a real issue post-war. And of course, it was just ignored. Governments didn't want to address fear and despair in their soldiers. They might have to, goodness me, do something about it that might cost money or time. So, Judith, unlike, say, Freud, Claire Weeks didn't separate the body from the mind. Absolutely, and that's what's so crucial to understand about how important she was because if you look at the 20th century, some scholars have observed that somewhere the body went missing, whereas the 19th (laughs) 19th century scholars like William James called the father of American psychology, William Cannon in the early 20s who did experiments on cats and adrenaline and things like that to try and work out, you know, what happened to their adrenaline levels, that there were a lot of biologists involved in this field and they'd look at the mind from a body point of view as well as the mind and they could see the engagement. You don't have fear as an abstract experience. Fear engages every organ in the body, um, including the skin. You know, I mean, it just you name it, it's involved. The heart, the stomach, uh, the blood. The blood starts clotting in preparation for being wounded. So, you know, it's a, it's a full body orchestra. And yet somewhere along the line, Freud started out, he started as a biologist and he understood somatic issues that people would present somatically. But in the end, he got wedded to his psyche. He, he wanted to be the Darwin of the unconscious. Let's hear a bit more of Dr. Weeks herself explaining her approach to anxiety. This is from a series of radio talks she gave called Pass Through Panic. The three culprits I'm talking about are sensitization, bewilderment and fear. Sensitization 
bewilderment and fear. Sensitization is a state in which nerves are conditioned to react in an exaggerated way. That is, they bring unusually intense feelings when under stress and they may react this way with alarming swiftness, almost in a flash. I repeat, sensitized nerves are alerted to react to stress in an exaggerated way and with alarming swiftness. Now, that is sensitization. And there's no mystery about sensitization. We've surely all felt it in a mild way, at the end of a rushed day at work or after a difficult day with the children, when our nerves feel on edge and little things upset us too much. Constant tension has alerted our nerves to react in this mildly exaggerated way. It's not pleasant and we don't like it. Bewilderment works by keeping a sensitized person constantly under the strain of asking himself, why am I like this? What is this thing that is happening to me? Why can't I be my old self? He looks at others and thinks, why can't I be like them? And if he finds no answer to his questions, fear comes into the picture. Fear of the state he is in. So the stress of bewilderment and the stress of fear are added to the stress of sensitization. Stress continually being added to stress. And so sensitization is kept alive. Claire Weeks developed a mantra to help her clients cure their anxiety. It was face, accept, float, let time pass. The word float was the one that some found hard to understand, including the many translators of her work into other languages. So I asked Judith what she meant. She means, she said, to think about it almost as if you're in a pool, that you would let go, that you would yield to the water and just completely release. Once she actually adapted that little mantra when she was writing to someone who was trying to nominate her for the Nobel Prize, of all things, and she inserted not fighting so she meant floating would be the every instinct in our body accepting is one thing you know it's not easy that's for sure but if you accept that tiger's walking towards you but you have to float towards the tiger almost you have to release towards it and you're not going to be able to necessarily do that but you can think that thought and you can go for that movement rather than go for the automatic holding back, tensing up, gripping that you normally do. One of the things that was a passion of hers throughout her life and at one stage could have been an alternative career was music. She had this idea that she was going to become a music teacher and it was music, in fact, that led her to her lifelong companion. So perhaps you can tell us about her. She did start out, of course, engaged to a man, and that was the interesting point where Marcelo Rousseau, an Australian soldier, was the one who first freed her understanding of the heart palpitations because when she was panicking in London, she finally sort of broke down and said, I'm just, i not coping. And he said, well, what's happening? And she said, I'm getting heart palpitations. And he said, well, that's just what we got in the trenches. So so that was the revelation. She said, oh, you mean I'm just frightening myself? And that was her first revelation. 
So she gets that insight and then they get engaged. I suspect so grateful is she to him because suddenly she thinks, oh, my God, I now understand. And the heart palpitations settled down once she stopped being frightened of them. They went away. And so that revelation was such they became engaged. But then for some reason that I never understood, she broke it off and she came back to Australia. And then she wanted to change Then she got restless with science and the laboratory. She loved people and she didn't want to be stuck in a laboratory. And I think she'd come to the end of lizard research. It was a bit boring. While she was completing her doctorate, she joined the Conservatorium of Music. She she had a beautiful voice. Her father was um, a musician and her mother had grown up thumping away on the piano and they'd all grown up with music. So she loved it and she had a beautiful voice. So she, at the Conservatorium, she was accompanied by a woman called Beth Coleman and I think that was obviously just the most joyous period of her life. She'd been freed from these, you know, what turned out to be a couple of years of real suffering and not understanding what had happened to her and feeling she had gone completely mad. She'd broken off the relationship with Marcel, but she'd found Beth. And then she wanted suddenly in, I think, perhaps the, the, the power of this friendship was such she decided she and Beth could build an entirely new career overseas, Beth who was internationally renowned for her piano playing, um, could accompany her and she would teach. She still clung to the idea she was a scientist. She didn't like to let that go. So she would teach the science of singing was what she imagined as well as becoming a singer herself. So she sort of conjured up this international career for the two of them and off they headed in the early 30s, you know, with this marvellous idea to go and make it in Europe. But I think that to me also was a sign that she was so happy, that Beth made her incredibly happy. She felt very confident with Beth and so they took on the world quite literally. But unfortunately the world rewarded Beth a bit and she was picked up by a couple of very well-known European singers and her career was okay. But there wasn't really a big demand for Dr. Claire Weeks as, as a science of singing teacher. So she realised that that career wasn't really going to work. So she headed back to Australia with Beth. And at that stage, um, she then decides, I mean, can you imagine a woman who's got the first doctorate in science from Sydney University, gives that up to teach singing, that falls over. And then she thinks, what will I do now? And then she thinks, well, I've travelled so much in Europe, which she had. Of course, I'll set up a travel agency. Well, and I will write travel stories for the media. Well, I think she might have modelled that a bit on Beth's father, who was a journalist. Maybe he helped out there. And so next minute she's writing a weekly column on travel to Europe and she's writing the first travel guide to Australia. She is going to write everything about Clara seems to always be the first. She was the first woman to get the Doctor of Science at Sydney University. She was going to teach science and, you know, singing. And now she's going to be the first person to write it travel um, book for Australia. So this is a fascinating, quixotic, but incredibly badly timed venture because two years into it, she's just about finished the book. She's got the weekly column she's been writing for two years. And then in 1939, don't hold me to all the dates, um, World War Two starts and travel is suddenly off the agenda, but war is on it. So The book never gets published. The column is immediately dropped because no one's going to be going to Europe. And she is faced with a choice again. Now, what will be my, what have we got? One, two, three, what will be my fourth career? So at that stage, I like to think, she thought, there's a war. What happened in the last war? In the last war, my then fiancé explained to me about soldiers with shell shock and the terrible fears they had 
and how they had to come to terms and understand about fear in order to recover. So maybe it would be useful for me to be a doctor if there's a war and I could treat shell-shocked soldiers after the war. Now, I don't know that to be true, but I do know that she volunteered for the uh, Red Cross. But it meant that from the 1941 through to 45, she was studying medicine. And just as the war finished, she was qualified to become a medical doctor. So she had a doctorate of science and now she was a medical doctor and she started up general practice in Bondi. We got a bit sidetracked there, so I bring Judith back to the question of the nature of Claire's relationship with her companion, Elizabeth Coleman, who was such a central part of her life. In the book, Judith is very discreet about it, so I pressed her about whether it was platonic or not. In my mind, it was an absolute love affair, and they were soulmates. The word soulmates is used by all her family, but of course, there's I have... There's zero evidence beyond that, except that everyone accepted it, that they were absolutely inseparable soulmates. Mm. No one, they never declared their position to anyone. They never shared a bedroom as far as anyone knew in the house they shared. Beth had the big bedroom, Claire had the smaller one, although they did share a bedroom in the first, when she first met Beth, Beth would come and stay in the family home and she and Beth would share the front bedroom when she stayed with their parents. That was when they were in their 20s. But there's nothing exceptional about any of that. And, you know, as they never declared themselves to be in a sexual relationship, they maintained, if you like, the easy fiction that Lots of women post-war, lots of men had died. It was very it was very common for women to live together. It was very unremarkable and it was not commented on in any way um, except by her very rude brother. I remember one of his children saying they'd be in the car and he loved his sister but he was a bit mad and, and difficult, Brian, and he'd say, oh, we're off to see the dykes. So the family speculated, you know, rudely and wildly on it. Not all of them, I might add, but... There was speculation, of course, and into the 60s when people became more aware of sexuality. Within the family, there was much discussion of it. But try as I may, because not that for prurient reasons, but just to understand. I also wanted to understand whether perhaps the panic she got in her youth or the stress she got in her youth was in some way related to feeling different from everybody else. Um, I would have liked to have known if that played a part in her anxiety, carrying some sort of guilt or shame or worry about her own sexuality. So it was important to me to find that out. But I have to tell you, other than a few rude remarks, wider speculation within some, not all, members of the family, um, mainly everyone just came to accept it for what they, they purported it was, which was a very, very close, enduring partnership. That's the best I could get to. Also, I think what was interesting, I did find out about Beth that I found out from a family in London she spent time with, that one of the young men who knew her over there when she was living with Claire in his mother's house said that she would have made a brilliant counsellor herself. He found Claire herself quite cut and dried and terrible competition for his mother's time. So he sort of wasn't really all that fond of the visit, the long visits from Claire and Beth because Claire would take up his mother's attention. He didn't have a father and, and the children would, would sort of miss out. But Beth, he said, was 
brilliant. She would always listen to you. She would give wonderful advice. So he gave me a window into understanding also the value she would have been to Claire herself as a partner. Beth made a wonderful listener, and I think Claire needed that. She she took up all the foreground. She was she was the very much the dominant personality within her own family. She was the the great doctor who was curing people left, right and centre of anxiety in her Bondi practice and then in her specialist rooms in Macquarie Street where she built a reputation for particularly understanding the anxiety state as a diagnostic physician. And I think Beth was just a wonderful partnership foil for her and was a real stalwart. But what strikes me about this field is that everyone follows someone. They follow Freud or they follow someone who's invented a new approach and they all just believe in their approach and they're very reluctant to look at a different way. And if you're standing up in front of even however convincing and however formidable you are, and she was rather formidable, she had a very, she was very, uh, had an educated Australian accent, she had a, quite a dominant presence, she had no doubt, and she knew her stuff. But in professional gatherings of psychologists and psychiatrists, a lot of them just said, well, she's not a trained psychiatrist, she's not a trained psychologist. So they dismissed her work as not, she's outside their silo. So I think, yes, she was formidable. Yes, she was articulate. Yes, she was convincing. But she could only convince individuals through her books or patients. She couldn't convince the professions because she was asking them to overturn the body of work and the gurus they were following. And they weren't going to do that, not for a woman who wasn't one of them. Um, the reason the professionals didn't accept her was she didn't write for them. If she'd chosen as a doctor and a and a scientist to write for them, that would have been one thing. She was she was leveraging off self help books, and they didn't like self help, and they'd been successful, so therefore that was not a good thing. Given that these books had a huge reach and became bestsellers, and obviously the general public took to them and embraced them, I'm wondering whether she also had any kind of celebrity clientele, because you mentioned uh, Les Murray, the Australian poet who was well known for suffering from depression, and who obviously subscribed to the Claire Weeks treatment. Yeah, well, there was Erin Brockovich who read her no. books. Yes, no. yes, yes, yes. I'm just wondering whether stars were drawn to her wisdom. Well, I, I know that she told her she told her nieces that she'd treated, and in fact she mentioned in her books that she'd treated some very famous people indeed, but clearly she's not going to name them. I mean, there's no, under no medical law are you allowed or ethical position are you allowed to reveal who you've been treating. So she has indicated to people that there were some very big names, but she herself has not revealed them. I did hear about Erin only because soon after the movie came out, she was interviewed by Publishers Weekly. They asked what books had helped her or what books she was reading or something. And she said one of the books that really helped me was Dr. Claire Weeks. She used the English title and the American title, Hope and Help for Your Nerves. And I thought that was wonderful because Claire Weeks always said people who suffer from nervous anxiety are not cowards, you know, it's it's the wrong way to look at them. And she was a perfect example of exactly that issue. She felt she was anxious, but she wasn't a coward. She was extremely brave. But surely in her papers, if there were really significant people, weren't you tempted to reveal who they were if you found them? The trouble is she didn't have children. She had a bunch of 
um, her nieces, and she had garbage bags full of letters. Green, they used to store them in big green garbage bags. Even she was writing to people. She said, "You should see the bags. They just she'd just collect them and and they threw them all out. A lot of them, Ugh. all thrown out. So what was kept? What was kept was anything to do with copyright was kept because, of course, that was. That was useful because she left the copyright to the nieces, so they kept all of the business dealings and all of the other stuff. And you can't blame them. I mean, can you imagine garbage bags full of thank you letters and what have you that are of no meaning to you and you've got your own small place in Canberra or whatever, you can't store them. So, And they didn't ever probably understand some. They would have had they known someone was going to write a book about it, but, you know, they didn't know that either. So, No, nobody ever does, do they? They, they just chucked them. The other sad thing was that she burned all the letters. When Beth died, she burned all the letters and correspondence between her and Beth went on into the flames as well. So we had, I didn't have those either. Very disappointing. She was so distraught by Beth's death. That was a huge, huge blow for her. Um, and she said in the distress that she couldn't bear to be reminded. She, she couldn't even go into Beth's room, she said. Beth had the beautiful front room in Cremorne with a view over the water. There was another living room with views, but Beth had the lovely bedroom and Claire had the one that didn't have the view. And she, she never went back into that room after Beth died ever, apparently. So it tells mm. you something about the attachment between the two of them. What was the most difficult part of the book for you or what was the moment which was the kind of epiphany or the sort of euphoric moment? Well, there were huge numbers. I'll answer the last question. But there were huge numbers of euphoric moments because every time I looked somewhere, there was some more interesting part of her life. There was, oh, this is how the, you know, the singing taught her about breathing and about that's, you know, and the importance of breathing to calming your state. And um, and the singing was how she met Beth, and Beth was also good at counselling. And then you'd then you'd find out that the travel, all this travel that she and and how she learned to communicate to a an audience by writing first columns for newspapers, which taught her that she could communicate to a popular audience. So you put all these little bits together, and I just had this joy. I swim most days. These days I walk, but I used to swim from and I was continually juggling the story around in my head, and I found that uh, that process of finding out different bits of her story, working out how they all fitted together, and then how they fitted to her understanding of the anxiety state, and I could... I could everything link to everything else in the most wonderful way and I could play with that idea and I found that really fantastic. The challenge was, I found there were two challenges. The challenge was physically getting all the words onto the computer, as any writer probably knows. It's like people say they love writing, but actually I love editing. I just want someone to put all the stuff up there. Like if you put all the clay, you get the clay, you've got to get the clay out of its box and onto the table before you can start sculpting and actually hauling that stuff into your computer and into the documents, getting all the words up there before you can start making sense of them. I find that first bit really, really demanding and I love the editing process. And the second bit that was really enjoyable and a total process of joy but quite challenging too was I felt I had to understand the arc of treatment over the 20th century and the theories, all the different theories, and how psychotherapy, be it psychoanalysis, psychological approaches, and there's a whole misunderstanding about the various approaches, 
between what's a psychiatrist and what's a psychologist and what do they do and what's different about what they do. And what was the history of that thought? Now, that was a huge, for me, intellectual challenge. And I had some help with it with some marvellous people who knew a lot, just not necessarily professionals, just one individual who knew a lot that helped me. But I used to listen to recordings of all sorts of people. I read all sorts of books. And it was just trying to get a grip on that arc and make sense of it and not shame myself by being a journalist who has not quite, you know, maybe I've overlooked something, maybe I haven't understood that. But after a while I realised that everyone's so muddled about the history of this. The history doesn't seem to be well. Then Because they're so divided in their treatment, the profession, it's not like cardiology where everyone's built on one thing after another or whatever, and they can see the beginnings and they can see what they agree on and there's they might disagree at the edges, but there's a body of work that they're continuing to build on and they understand the history. In this field, you know, you've got people going off in left field as Freudians and you've got people going off as behaviourists and just studying behaviour and then you've got people who say, it's just thoughts that matter, let's just study thoughts, you know. So someone who integrates the mind and body is doing something different again. And so if you try to look for a history there are a few around, don't get me wrong, I'm not the only person that's tried to do it, but it's not intellectually easy to do it in a way that can explain to the popular audience how confused and confusing this field is, which is one reason why she loses her place in it because the history has not been properly written, because there is so little agreement. And that's where we can't say, as I would argue, this is what she's done, this is what she's changed. All these people have in an unknown way, inherited her understanding and they don't even know she was the author of this book. She was the author of this idea. The woman who cracked the anxiety code proves that Claire Weeks is a deserving and fascinating subject for a biography, a clear example of a woman whose life has been largely forgotten, although her techniques are still very much in use. She would have been fascinated to have seen the development of the field of neuroplasticity, which confirms many of her theories. Judith Hoare has done a truly meticulous job of documenting the progression of Weeks's ambition, from her days investigating reptile brains and evolution, to the people who were instrumental to her success along the way, and those who took advantage of her trusting nature, and acknowledging the central relationship that gave her love, security and support. This was the final episode in the first series of Life Sentences. I hope you've enjoyed the series and will be back for series two later this year. Please leave us a review if you like what you've heard. Thank you to my two producers, David Roach for Two Heads Media and Jennifer Macy for steering this little ship's course steadily and safely. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you want to follow me as I continue to read biographies and other stories, do that on Instagram. Till next time.